Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing All Quiet on the Western Front. All Quiet on the Western Front, or Nothing New in the West, was written by Eric Maria Remarque and published in 1928. And the film adaptation directed by Edward Berger came out in 2022. And this movie that came out uh, in 2022 has been nominated for Best Picture this year, yes. which is part of the reason that we decided to do this episode. We really love getting to tie into our podcast, into the Oscars and what's nominated every year. Yeah, I mean, especially big budget adaptations on classic novels like this. Like, mm-hmm. it seems like a great opportunity, especially because I'm really shocked. This seems like the kind of book that would have been made into a movie like every 10 years. Yeah. But there's only two other real adaptations of it as far as I'm aware. Yeah, the 1930 American film, which was filmed actually pre-Hayes Code and was very brilliant and kind of like a landmark achievement for its time. And it did win Best Picture back then. And then there's like a made-for-TV version in like the 70s. That's the 70s one? Yeah. I didn't realize that was made-for-TV. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe the legacy of the first one was so yeah. big, especially like within Hollywood, that to make a new one would have, you know, was maybe intimidating. For sure. I mean, it's really worth noting that this film was made by a German director yes. with German actors. They're, they're speaking in German. You know, it is a German film and it's based on a German novel. And so I think it makes sense. And it's really great that we're able to get this now because as great as I'm sure the 1930s American version was, it's the American version, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I always think these stories are interesting and maybe more important now, more so than ever, to get that like German perspective mm-hmm. on these wars because it's so easy to you know see the american perspective especially in world war ii of us just bursting into europe kicking ass mm-hmm. and like being the heroes right and like yeah. not really seeing the nuance of how countries are led into these wars and i mean literally torn apart you know and the conflict of world war one is so multifaceted and complicated and Mm -hmm. like yeah it began with like the assassination of like franz ferdinand Mm -hmm. but like the motivations of all the different countries that were involved and how they like worked together and i I, I mean i just was kind of like refreshing myself on that history like Mm -hmm. briefly today And it's just so complicated. And I feel like that's another reason we don't see or haven't seen a ton of World War I Mm -hmm. film adaptations, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's very bleak, right? Um, I'm sure there are a lot of great movies that focus on heroism, right? I mean, 1917 is an example. Yeah. It's the story of two soldiers, you know, trying to save this company, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of this feeling of hopelessness with World War I because of trench warfare, right? And, like, something I want to talk about specifically is, like, how often this book is used in schools. Yeah. I had to read it in high school. I know you didn't. But I, I don't I don't think I did. I honestly <laughs> didn't read a lot of the books I was supposed to in high school, so it's possible. But, mm-hmm. but like, this is, has become such a classic of literature and such an important anti-war novel. Yeah. Even, I mean, when it came out, it was massively popular. Mm -hmm. Like, everybody was reading it, you know, in Germany, in America, in the UK. Many different uh, language editions came out. And then there was that movie that came out almost immediately after the book came out. So it was really, really popular. Something that I wanted to mention is that Remark, the book's author, 
was, you know, a veteran from World War One. He actually only was in the war for about six weeks. Wow, was that all? Yeah, because he was injured. He was at the front mm-hmm. for six weeks, like six weeks total. Yeah. Was injured and then spent basically the rest of the war recovering from his injury. I knew his injury was really serious. Yeah, and he wrote this book and then quite a few other books about the war and about just what it was like in Germany after the war. Mm. And I also wanted to mention that this book, even though it was massively popular when it first came out, around this time, which 1928 is when it first came out, the movie came out in 1930, Nazis were starting to take power around this time. And so as Nazism became more extreme in Germany, they actually banned this book and the movie. So the Nazis were like, it's anti-war propaganda. And Remark had to flee Germany. He wow. was kind of yes. living part time yeah. in, in Switzerland at the time. And he had to like fully immigrate to Switzerland. He eventually came to America. But apparently his sister was executed oh from possibly being involved in like anti-Nazis or resistance activities. Wow. Yeah. But they like targeted her specifically because of her ties to him. Oh, that's so terrible. I mean, the irony is that the book, I mean, like, yes, a lot of what the book focuses on and the language like clearly is meant to have you questioning, Mm -hmm. like, what are the soldiers doing here? Like, what does it mean to them? You know, but it's also just a book about a soldier's experience. Yeah. And it's written in such a plain kind of language that's Mm -hmm. so just matter of fact that to like call it propaganda is almost funny i know because in the way that it doesn't dress up its language at all Mm -hmm. and like it really doesn't feel like it has an agenda even though in some ways it's very clear about what it's doing yeah it also feels like it doesn't have to try at all to make no, that point y- you can just tell the facts and it that can be anti-war <laughs> yes right exactly. it can make you think that because the facts are so horrible absolutely yeah so yeah. the idea that this book is getting like labeled as propaganda is like so absurd but it makes sense from like the rising nazi party in germany and, mm-hmm. and everything so yeah uh, should we get into this story, though? Yeah, and we actually want to start with the way that the movie begins. Uh-huh. Because the movie begins in such an interesting and really, really cool way. This is one of the best beginnings of a movie. I mean, I'll have to watch the movie again to, like, solidify this opinion. Yeah. But maybe one of the best beginnings to any movie I've seen. I know. It's so good. It, it begins, like, I mean, first of all, we just get shots of nature. Mm-hmm. And... The book does this too, and the film does it as well, effectively. And this is ironic because the last episode we just did on Lady Chatterley also had a big focus on nature. Yeah. And contrasting it with, like, basically the setting of the story. And mm-hmm. this story does it too. We get these shots of nature, of a forest. We see in the film, like, this, like, fox yeah. family that's, like, super cute. Mm-hmm. And then we see No Man's Land yeah. between the trenches. Mm-hmm. Just this muddy cratered wasteland with corpses everywhere corpses and barbed wire and Mm -hmm. it's just so alien and horrifying yeah and we go into one of the trenches of the german side Mm -hmm. and they were following a a very young soldier named heinrich Mm -hmm. and they're about to uh launch an attack against the other uh side yeah and heinrich has to be like pulled over a guy goes up a ladder right in front of him and immediately gets shot in the head. Mm-hmm. And He's, then they're yeah. all running. It's like crazy. And this this theme is repeated throughout this movie. And I think 
it's portrayed in the book as well of like just the randomness of who dies and who doesn't. Yes. Right. Like yeah. you're running. It's chaos. Like you do have to use your instincts and and duck and, and dodge when you think you hear something or when an instinct tells you. But so much of it is random. Right. And I think I've read and it's very true that differentiates this from like a pro war story mm-hmm. where a lot of stories that kind of like glorify war make it seem like only the strongest can yes, survive. And the and smart. Like, and the smartest. And yeah. And it's like no a lot of smart and strong people just get mowed down yeah right Mm -hmm. and it cuts to the uh opening title right when this heinrich character stabs a french soldier with with, his shovel with his shovel which is accurate to the book yes then we get the continuation of this Mm -hmm. we see heinrich's body yeah in a a mass pile of other german soldiers Mm -hmm. he is stripped of his clothes his body is put in a mass grave Mm -hmm. those clothes are shipped in bloodied bags to women who wash them, yeah. sew them, repair them, and then ship them off to new recruits. Yeah. Just watching the machine of war kind yeah. of happen and seeing one person who we just follow for a moment and then follow what happens to his clothing yeah. after he dies and just how tragic and sad it is that, like, nobody cares. Yeah, his, de- his death feels so meaningless, mm-hmm. right? The movie then kind of shows us our main character, Paul, with some of his school friends, and they're all getting ready to volunteer to join the war. Yeah, we get a scene of them all watching. Is it their schoolmaster mm-hmm. in the film? Yeah, giving this impassioned speech about joining the the military making their fatherland proud yes and how it's not about any individual it's about being a part of like the body of the german country Mm -hmm. and like everyone's real like riled up by this and Mm -hmm. cheering and i mean just the youthful face of paul in this moment yeah uh, is so heavily contrasted later but this this is mentioned in the book but we don't like see it happen it's more like memory that we hear about later i think the movie did want to show a contrast though between the paul at the beginning and the paul at the end yeah yes and of course after he uh you know goes through his what what, evaluation evaluation he's given a uniform and he's like oh wait uh i think this already belongs to someone because it has a tag on it that says Heinrich. Yeah. So, of course, he has the uniform of this dead soldier we watched at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And the the army sergeant or whoever who's given it to him just kind of rips it off and is like, oh, I'm sure it was a, a mistake. Here you go. It was probably too small for him. Yeah. And it just really shows you how little these people care yeah. about these children going off to war. Yeah. They're just like being thrown in like a meat grinder right they're just being fed Mm -hmm. to this the machine of war and like they're just taking the clothes out and and giving them to new recruits to be thrown back in the Mm -hmm. grinder yeah and it just really i mean right out of the gate like and this isn't anything that's tied to the book at all no but it's such a smart way of already having you thinking critically yes about this war from the very beginning and giving you an idea about how this person was treated at the beginning yes and how paul will be treated throughout the movie as yes well. yeah absolutely so let's talk about how the book begins the book kind of drops you into paul and his friends and they're not at the front right now but they've been in the war for like maybe a year already we're not quite sure about how much time has passed, but we're kind of like introduced to what's happening. We meet Paul, we meet Kat, 
who's like an older soldier who's like more in his 40s and is kind of like taking Paul under his wing a little bit. Yeah, they're very close. They're close friends and kind of like do a lot together. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of his schoolmates who, and these characters are in the film as well. Yeah. uh, There is Crop. Yes. Who in the film is kind of depicted as being like, like kind of dim-witted, you know, kind of like goofy almost. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Mueller. Mm -hmm. uh, Jodin. Jodin. Who isn't one of the classmates. Do you think... I always pictured Jodin in the book as being the same age as them, but in the film, he's depicted as kind of older. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was curious if I kind of like misread that in the book or if they changed it in the film. Yeah, there's some other characters like uh, Dietering, Lear, um, probably some others we haven't mentioned. Yeah. So, some people come in and out, but those are kind of the main ones. Yeah, yeah. They're not at the front right now. We kind of have this scene of them like arguing with the cook about being served double rations, right? Because they, and they get it because all the people are dead. Yeah. So they're like, they, there's extra food. They've taken such heavy casualties that there's twice as many rations for every mm-hmm. soldier. Yeah. And so they're getting to enjoy like more cigarettes, more food, more drink. And mm-hmm. it's this weirdly like happy moment. Yeah. And like a lot of this is kind of depicted as almost being like not idyllic, mm-hmm. but. Very much making the most of it. And once again, like nature is talked about a lot. Like there's one scene I love in the book where they all have these boxes that yeah. have holes in them that they just shit in. Yeah. And they'll just like arrange them in a circle in a field <laughs> and just be shitting and talking. Yeah. They're like, we'll be out there for hours. Oh, yeah. We'll sit there all afternoon and just shit and talk. <laughs> and it's like kind of it's funny, but also kind of like very sweet and almost like beautiful. Yeah. It's interesting because when we talk about them going to the front, they're in the front for a matter of weeks or months even. And then they're pulled back and they're kind of in the more reserve, like they're maybe like five miles away from the front. Yeah. So like they can still hear the war. They can still hear the bombing. They're still kind of in danger a little bit, but they're sort of on on a break. Yes. They're able to refresh a little bit until they're sent back to the front. And so the book kind of takes us back and forth a lot with this group because they're all in the same regiment or whatever yeah so they go together but this contrast between when they're allowed to rest and how they kind of have to enjoy themselves right yeah and then when they're forced to go into this horrific experience of the front and and just that contrast being very strong yes another significant event at the beginning of the book is a friend of theirs named kemerich Mm -hmm. has been injured uh, his leg was injured. I forget if he was shot or what yeah. happened, but they ended up amputating the leg and he's sick and he's not doing well. And they all just know he's going to die. Yeah. Paul and the others go and visit him and Paul actually like stays with him for a while. Yeah. It's very sad, but like juxtaposed with this is like kind of the reality. And you have Mueller being like, hey, Kemmerich, can I have your boots? <laughs> yeah. And he's being like, I mean, you don't have one leg. Like, yeah. can I have your boots? And everyone has to, I, there's, <laughs> there's actually like a lot of dark humor in this book. Yeah. That's really like, they're all <laughs> standing around Kemmerich, like trying to cheer him up. And they kept stepping on Mueller's foot to get him to stop talking <laughs> about the boots, like yeah. to like take a hint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they're also like, you I know. I mean, he's going to die. I, I think it's, um. I think it's Paul takes the boots for Mueller. Eventually, Kemmerich is like, you can take them. So yeah. like, it, it is serious, but there's almost kind of this like weird humor about it as well. Mm-hmm. I also want to mention that in the book, 
they refer back to the basic training that they received um, when they first volunteered for the war. And I don't know if that's actually what it was called, but that's kind of the equivalent in my mind as to where yeah. they went. They kind of went for a a training when they first signed up and then they were sent to the front. But like something that they talk about a lot in the book is just all these people that are given these positions of power in the military because of the war. Yes. Who before this were maybe not involved in the military, like this character uh, Himmelstoss. Yes. Who was a postal worker <laughs> yeah. and is for some reason allowed to uh, control these new recruits he's like a, this basic training. Yeah, he's like a drill instructor now. Yeah. And he was just merciless to them. Yeah, I tortured mean, them. They're all young. They're all 19 and he has this position of power over them mm-hmm. and like they're kind of rebelling against him slightly but like he's just being like really cruel to them and the mm-hmm. one character Jaden, yeah is just especially hung up on it like he just can't mm-hmm. let this like anger go and like the night before they like are sent to leave or to graduate this program they end up kind of like attacking Himmelstoss <laughs> when he's coming home from the pub one yeah, night they know what alley he takes so they like <laughs> throw a bag over his head and just beat the shit out of him <laughs> And I really love this, like this, the book depicting, I I don't know, like they're all involved in this like horrific war, right? Yeah. But it's also like- The everyday cruelty, right? Yes, these kind of like rivalries and grudges and Mm -hmm. like, I mean, talking about just like eating and shitting, like so much of this book talks about eating and shitting. Yeah. Just these like day, the the mechanics of their day to day Mm -hmm. and like what they need to get by and how they do it. And like the smaller political angles of like what goes on in their life Mm -hmm. is like really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I really like this part. There's another part later where another character talks about someone who who was like cruel to them when they were in their basic training or when they were young, like, you know, young soldiers and like him getting his revenge. Right. And so it's just yeah. this idea of like these people that use their positions of power to torment people, even in the midst of war, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just people grabbing power where they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's interesting timeline wise and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So when I think Paul in the book is. On in total in the war at the front for three years. I think so. I think it says by the end of the book he's yeah. there until um like October of 18. 1918. 19, 1918, yes. Mm-hmm. And in the film leading up to the end of the war, I think it's like an, a year and a half gap. Yes. So it's a much shorter amount of time. Yeah. And so what's interesting about that is I think the movie wanted to focus more on the end of the war. Yes. And... The book more focuses on the middle of the war. It does kind of talk about the months leading up to the end, but it's more focused on that middle portion when things are really, really bad, when the trench warfare is just really awful and significant, like locked in. But like Paul and his, you know, friends are kind of some of the older soldiers. And so as we're kind of hearing about them going to and from the front, we hear about new recruits joining up and then being like very fresh faced and innocent, not getting the training that they got. Yeah. Just getting thrown into it, thrown straight into the warfare. And, you know, Paul commenting like, you know, they're killed 10, 10 of them to one of us because they have no training and just how awful it is. And it almost seems like the movie is actually portraying Paul and his friends as these new recruits. Yeah, because we don't see any of their basic training or anything like that. And when they arrive at the front, they feel 
incredibly unprepared. I mean, I don't think anything can quite prepare you for that. Yeah. But they just feel like they don't know what to do at all. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it feels like in the film, he's he's one of those young recruits who didn't receive that training and is kind of really just thrown into the fire. Yeah, contrasted with Kat, who when they meet in the movie is clearly one of the older soldiers who's been there for a while. Yeah. Let's get to the front. Yes. So in the book, it's, you know, their their time in the um, their R and R is over. You know, their, <laughs> yeah. their time at the, the spa. shitting circle. Yeah, is the done. shitting circle is uh, disbanded for the time. Yeah, and they are are uh, sent off to the front again. Mm-hmm. And in the film, they're just taken right to the front, right? Mm-hmm. And the front. Yes. So. I, I think a lot of us kind of know visually from from movies and other things of like how uh, World War One was kind of like laid out, and it's really interesting. I, I was reading that they talk a lot about their spades, right? Their little shovels. Yeah. And he kind of explained how like those are so important to soldiers at the beginning of the war because like if you needed cover, you would just dig a hole basically and kind of climb into it. Yeah. And he said that's kind of how the trenches began. Yeah. Was literally soldiers just <laughs> digging holes for themselves and oh then they kind of just like connected them and then they just formed these trenches and then yeah. reinforced them and created dugouts and it just kind of like happened naturally. Wow. And so you have these two uh, opposing trenches with no man's land in between like mm-hmm. we were saying before, barbed wire, it's just mud and bodies. Well, and they don't have the air power to disrupt this, right? Yeah. Like there is some air airplanes, right? Yeah. But it's not to the extent as at World War II had. No, there's some dog fighting yeah. going on. But yeah, nothing to what you would see later in World War II. And I mean, it's just muddy. There's just disease. Like everyone gets crammed in these tiny dugouts. Mm-hmm. There's like nowhere to sleep. It's really just like an abysmal place to to be. Yeah. Like you said, there's just disease and trench foot is something that's super common because they mm. can't get their feet dry. Yeah. Which is horrific. And then there's rats. Right? The, the rats. Oh, my God. There's a whole portion in the book. And well, once again, talking about like the minute conflicts and like details yes. of trench life. It's all about how do we kill these rats? How yeah. do we keep our food from the rats? Mm-hmm. And there's a part where they like leave bread in the middle of a room and they just stand there with shovels and just start killing rats as yeah. they like come in to get the bread. Oh, there's a horrific part where after there's been a battle, they're like, we have some relief from the rats at least. Although we try not to think about why. Yeah. And you realize it's because all the rats have left the trenches because there's so many bodies to feast on in no man's land, Mm -hmm. that that's where they all are. Yeah. (laughs) Quite, quite horrible. Yeah. So interesting how to read, though, about in the book how the attacks go. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, there's just kind of like general firing at each other. Yes. With machine guns um, and and the shelling, right? Mm -hmm. So typically a lot of times, like I think there's a lot of times just shelling going on at all points. But I think especially when the Allied... Uh, forces would attack mm-hmm. they would shell the enemy trench sometimes for days yeah just non-stop endless, endless. and the psychological impact of this on the soldiers mm-hmm. is like really devastating yeah and so they would shell them just continuously and then at some point it would stop mm-hmm. and that's when on foot the soldiers would attack from yes. the other side yeah and they would kind of get pushed back with like machine gun fire and fire from uh, the German soldiers. Mm-hmm. And then as they're retreating, the German soldiers would follow them. Yes. 
And then they would go all the way to their trenches. Yeah. And then have to come back. Which makes sense because as the Germ as the French soldiers, I'm sorry, are fleeing back yeah. to their side, the other side can't really just machine gun in that direction because their own men are retreating back to them. Yeah. So it makes sense that the Germans would come right on their tail Mm -hmm. and then return attack their trench. Yeah. And then eventually reinforcements would come and they'd have to flee And they have to flee. It's so sick. It almost seems like a game. It seems like capture the flag. You know, you you run over to their side and then you have to run back and Mm -hmm. then they run over and... And sometimes you take that front trench, right? And we see that in the movie. Like the, the trench that was once the Germans is now the French's trench, right? Because they do sometimes take each other's trenches, but really there was hardly any movement going on. It's what you're saying, right? It's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, over the course of however many years that this war went on, like Mm -hmm. the fronts almost didn't move at all. Yeah. Like very little ground was gained or lost by either side. And it just became an amount of like, you know, how much food, supplies, and manpower... Are we losing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of determined who lost the war in the end. For sure. Yeah, it's really sad. And we see in the movie Paul and his, his friends being thrown into this first battle at the front. It's very intense. I think Paul ends up getting his hat shot off in one part. Yes. On watch or something. Yeah, a sniper because he fires once and then doesn't move and gets shot in the helmet and obviously like survives but cat is there and he's like they saw your muzzle flash mm-hmm. if you ever shoot drop back down move over 10 paces mm-hmm. pop back up uh kind of like there to like help him mm-hmm. but i mean he easily could have been shot in the face yeah. it's just one of those moments where he just like lucked out mm-hmm. right yeah there's a scene with them when they're huddled up in the bunker because the shelling is so bad mm-hmm. and the recruits are like going crazy because they feel like they're going to be buried alive. The one is just, I think it's Ludwig is just yeah. banging his head against mm-hmm. a wall and like everyone's just freaking out. One kid, and this is the same in the book, flees. He just runs out because mm-hmm. uh, he's basically like feels trapped, yeah. runs outside, immediately gets blown up. Yeah. Just in in the most gruesome way. Yeah. And then in the movie, the bunker does collapse and Paul is buried and we see him getting dug out later. Luckily, he's alive. Yeah. But um, just seeing how horrific this is for his first war experience. And he gets like two minutes to like sit and recover before Mm -hmm. like a sergeant is like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? Just sitting there. Go go do something useful. And he has to walk around and collect the, the dog tags of the fallen soldiers, mm-hmm. which their dog tags, I don't know if that's what they call them, but, y- you know, their um, identification yeah. necklaces uh, are really interesting because it's like it snaps in two. Yeah. So there's like, I think it's probably the same info on both parts, but mm-hmm. you just collect those half circles. So you know who died so you can tell their family. Yeah. And there's a part later where um, someone in an office just has a pile of those mm-hmm. and is just counting them and writing down the names. Yeah. And it just shows you how men are distilled to numbers mm-hmm. in that moment. Like, they're not even given a face. They're just a, a piece of metal, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty chilling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about goose hunting, Ian. Yes. Uh, a, a favorite pastime. So in the <laughs> film, at this point, we get an 18-month jump forward in time Mm -hmm. and this is the first time we're seeing paul and in this case cat like Mm -hmm. after this time jump and i think this is a really interesting scene to reintroduce us to where like paul is at yeah because him and cat find this uh french farm kind of just in the middle of a field or Mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere 
and they are going to steal a goose. Yeah. And this scene happens in the book as well. Yeah. They're just so like, I mean, they even when they have food, it's just like almost exclusively turnips. Yeah. And they're just so sick of it that mm-hmm. like they'll try to find food wherever they can, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're gonna steal a goose from this farm. Mm-hmm. Of course, the farmer has a gun and yes. they have to flee, but they do manage to get the goose and like cook it together and like serve it up with their friends. Like, I really want to talk though and mention like kind of the bond between Paul and Kat. And yeah. like, Paul talks about this in the book in this scene how like intimate this is for the yeah. two of them to like sit there and just cook the goose together and just be. And I think the book really impresses on you the bonds of soldiers right yeah when you're literally in a life or death situation all you have is like just the the jokes and the companionship of the person next to you and that's like all that's holding you together yeah i mean there are points later on in the book where he's like you know laying awake at night just like really freaking out Mm -hmm. but like the sound of his comrades like asleep in the same room as him like brings him comfort Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, it's, like, really sweet, but then also so devastating as the war goes on and those characters begin to disappear, right? Yeah. Um, but he and Kat, like you said, especially have kind of a close bond, I think. Mm-hmm. We have a little episode where they find some French women in the book. <laughs> yes. I love in the book they're swimming in a creek, and they're mm-hmm. on the other side of the creek, and they're technically not allowed to go to that side. Yes. So all they can do is kind of shout to them in like the little French that they know, kind mm-hmm. of try to flirt with them. Yeah. And they sneak to their house in the middle of the night. Yes. I love it. They show up. They're just butt naked because they had to <laughs> swim across the creek. Yeah. So they just <laughs> show up in nothing but their boots. They bring food, though. And yes. like that's important to the French women because the French are also starving. Like, yeah. Everybody's starving right now. Um, but they're able to have this little sexual adventure with these women. I love how they have to like shake off Jaden before they go over because there's only three women and three of them. Well, they were going to be four men yeah. with only three women. So they like get Jaden drunk and leave him behind, <laughs> which is so funny. But yeah, I love this moment. It's like really sweet and innocent mm-hmm. and like all the more upsetting because you know how young Paul is. Like, he's only 19 at this point. And yeah. it's like, this is what his life kind of should be like. I know. And Just meeting up with, with women and yeah. having a good time. It's very consensual. Like, yes. it's just fun. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's so brief, though, right? Yeah. But <laughs> the scene ends with them walking back and they hear footsteps coming, so they all hide. And it's Jaden, <laughs> also naked now, running to the house. Yeah. Because <laughs> I guess he, like... Maybe thought he was only a little bit behind them. Yeah, and he's going to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> They're all like, he's going to be so upset with us. Uh, in the movie, we don't get the scene with the French woman, but we do have Franz Mueller in the movie going and beating up with the French woman. Yes, he sees them going by and he just kind of like leaves with them. I know. Yeah, which is, but he comes back later and he's got, he has a scarf from one of them. Yes. And everyone, he passes it around and they all take they all turns sniff it. sniffing it, just <laughs> inhaling deeply from this woman's scarf. Uh, we also get a scene where Kat gets a letter from his wife. And I didn't quite, I was a little confused at first because he hands it to uh, Paul mm-hmm. to read. 
And I wasn't sure because for a moment I'm like, wait, is this a letter for Paul or for him? Yeah. You find out later for certain that Kat actually can't read. Mm -hmm. And so he needs Paul to read the letters to him. Yes. This is a movie only thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, But it is interesting for Paul to just read this letter and hear from Kat's wife. And this is where it's mentioned, which is, again, just like a movie thing that Kat's son died. Yeah. Some time ago, we find out later he died from just an illness, mm-hmm. but um, kind of him and his wife talking about that. Yeah, just kind of like filling in the gaps of his life and his past. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think you need this in the book, but I also appreciate this, just fleshing him out as a person more. Yeah. And once again, we get they, this whole scene happens with them just shitting side by yeah. side, right? <laughs> and I don't know, I just, something about the idea of like, that being such a recurring thing in the book, I I kind of love. Yeah, the book talks about actually specifically how Paul had to get used to it. Yes. Like this idea of being so open about like your bodily functions, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. like at the same time, how freeing it was because nobody cared, right? Yeah. And they were literally in life or death situations all the time. So like they kind of stopped caring mm-hmm. about like farting and shitting. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like there's there's parts where they talk about farting and <laughs> yes. then they, they're talking about, you know, oh, I've got like the, the runs or I've got diarrhea. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just it's so present and important to them because it is life or death, right? You can get sick and you can shit yourself to death. Like yeah. that's dysentery, right? Yeah. So that's like dysentery, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's like they're in a situation where they literally can't escape each other and mm-hmm. can't hide anything from each other. And like of course they would have to bond together, right? Yeah. And it, in a way it's like they have no choice in the matter. So it's like kind of probably not even like a healthy dynamic or not always, but mm-hmm. like I think for the most part, a lot of times they do form like really close bonds, even if it is out of necessity. Mm-hmm. We have a scene in the film around this time where they are sent on a mission to find a missing unit mm-hmm. and they are, you know, searching around kind of this um, abandoned like rail like yard depot yeah. for like weapons and ammunition and they end up finding the unit crowded in one room and they all have asphyxiated and died from the gas because mm-hmm. i mean at this point you know in the war they are uh, bombing each other with gas mm-hmm. is it mustard gas yeah and you know if you don't get your mask on quick enough mm-hmm. or if you take it off too early yeah or you know at one point paul in the book talks about how if you were in a uh a shell hole yeah the gas will settle in that hole. Mm-hmm. So if you see someone out of the hole take off their mask and you think, oh, I can take my mask off. Yeah. You shouldn't because if you're lower. Yes. You still might get a lung full of gas, which will kill you. Yeah. And actually, this scene in the movie corresponds to just a, a moment in the book where they, they see a shell hole area just full of people yeah. who have taken their masks off too early and they're all dead. Yeah. So and it's just one of those things where it's like one mistake, mm-hmm. you know, one mistake and you're dead. Yeah. And it's 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 horrifying. Mm-hmm. Let's get back into the the book a little bit now, though. Yeah. And talk about a really significant and interesting portion that is exclusive to the book. And that is when Paul gets to go home on leave mm-hmm. for two weeks. Yeah. So he gets to, you know, ride the train back to his hometown, mm-hmm. see his mother, his sister, his father. Yeah. And kind of just get to spend some time at home. Yeah. And you know what? It's not great. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> believe it or not, uh, being at the front in this brutal war for months on end 
will psychologically damage you. Yeah. It's also really sad because his mom ha- might have cancer. Yeah. And she's very sick. And it's really hard, I think, for his family to connect with him and not for lack of love. In fact, we see in this in these scenes with him and his mom how much his mother loves him, yeah. right? Like, they've saved food. They've, like, really scrimped so that when Paul comes home, they can give him the best, right? Yeah. And, like, they they try to give everything they can to Paul and, and share with him. But he's so disconnected from them because mm-hmm. of his trauma. And, like, there's just these awful parts where his dad wants to talk about the war. <laughs> yeah. He wants to hear stories or, like... Yeah. He kind of thinks it's like an adventure, I think, and like wants to hear these like yeah. kind of crazy adventurous tales. And Paul, like like you said, on one hand, his family is doing everything they can for him. Mm-hmm. But he's also protecting them by pretending that like things are fine. Yeah. And not really telling them about the horrors that he's seen and like what he's feeling emotionally. And at mm-hmm. one point he even says how he can't really put into words what he's seen to his mom because to put them into words would be to make them real mm-hmm. and would make him come apart yes yeah and so he's got this like psychological barrier up mm-hmm. right now and like can't really like he's still he's still in a way has to be in that soldier mindset even though he's back home well and because he knows he's going back yeah right? he's yeah. like if i fall apart now I, they're gonna send me back no matter what yes and then i'll be dead you know, it's it's a survival thing for mm-hmm. sure. And like there are just these awful scenes in the book where he's in the town and some of the, the townsfolk who know him will like, oh, buy him a beer because mm-hmm. they know he's in the war. And like just talk about the war in such uh, an innocent and stupid way. Yeah, they'll be telling him what like, oh, the, the, the country as a whole should be doing, like mm-hmm. how they should be pushing back in the north against France so that they can, like, circle back and, like, flank. Yeah, and Paul is like, listen, it's, like, really bad. And they're like, you don't know. You only yeah. see the one part you're in. Like, the whole, this is what we have to do to win. You know, the the idiocy and the audacity of these people to lecture this soldier mm-hmm. who's living this horrific life and then being like, well, if you just went over here and attacked here and took this land, then we would be fine, yeah. you know? I think this is what the book does so well. It it cements you in the vantage point of a soldier. Yeah. And just what it means to be a soldier. How the mm-hmm. most important things to you are food and, like, just how to survive. Mm-hmm. And even being told by, like, a random stranger about, oh, the, the broader picture of the war is yeah, just it means insanity. Nothing. Like, yeah. it's just crazy. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. It just really, and I mean, like, there's so many, like I was saying earlier, multifaceted, like, complicated political dynamics that go on with this war. Yeah. I mean, that extended to Africa and Asia, mm-hmm. and eventually America gets involved, and, like, it's like, no wonder it was called, like, a world war or the Great War. But, like... All that means nothing to an individual soldier on the ground, right? Well, and even though Paul doesn't know the broader context, he knows that they don't have enough food. Yes, They don't have enough supplies, right? He's like, it's not going well. Yeah. Like, he knows that, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, nobody else can see that because they're not living it, right? And they don't care about all these people that are dying. There's also this really, really sad scene where he's in his room and he's looking at all these books that he used to love. And he used to be like 
such a reader and he loved books and had this like collection that he accumulated over the years and like really prized. And this was something about himself that was very special, right? And now he's looking at these books and he just feels dead inside. Yeah, he like sits down and tries to read one and it's not catching him. So he puts it aside and grabs another book and then another. And then pretty soon there's a stack of books beside him. And he just like this thing that used to bring him joy is just nothing to him. Yeah. And on one hand, he's like, I'm only on leave. This doesn't mean that this is my future after the war. Yeah. But on the other hand, like this is kind of a devastating thing to experience, right? Mm -hmm. That just nothing is bringing him joy. Like he he talks a lot about like wishing he were back at the front. Yeah. And just, you know, the things that mattered to him there were like, oh, maybe we can get a goose for dinner yeah and like what's going on with this guy and Mm -hmm. like oh we don't have to go back to the front for three days isn't that great and like just these like micro victories in his life Mm -hmm. are like the only thing that like get anything yeah yeah Mm -hmm. just this like any basic survival detail is all that matters to him anymore he eventually ends his leave and goes to like a retraining camp or some other type of Camp? It's not really clear why he's going there. No, I thought this would be, I thought he was getting like a promotion and was training for the promotion, but I guess he's just getting retrained. Yeah, he he goes to some army camp, right? But it's right next to a prisoner of war camp. And he sees all these Russian prisoners of war. And they're just even more miserable, obviously, than the soldiers are. Like starving, sick, like dying, all of this. But... Something that Paul notes is, like, that they're the same as he is, right? Mm -hmm. And that he thinks about what chance, right, had someone sign a letter or send an order out that these people would fight against these, you know, and that these people would have to kill each other. And deep down, he talks about, like, the two of them being more similar than Paul is to these upper generals, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, Paul is more similar to these Russian prisoners than to his own people who are in these high ranks. You know what else I like about this book that's kind of, like, being solidified for me right now as I'm thinking and talking about it is I like that this book, there's no eureka moment. No. Where Paul suddenly realizes, oh, my God, we're just like each other. Yeah. And he throws down his gun or like <laughs> yeah. protests or like doesn't fight anymore. There's no turning point. It's kind of a slow realization. Mm-hmm. And even after he's had the realization, he still goes back to the front. There's nothing else he can do. No. Yeah. Like this is what he's signed up for. Like he can't escape this. Mm-hmm. Like he just has to like keep going and like try to shut these feelings out. Yeah. Because what can he do about it in in the long run, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's like really significant that, because there are other moments when he has like close contact with like enemies yeah. that are kind of revealing to him. But, but- I, d- I don't think it's like, necessarily anything he hasn't considered before yes it's just stuff he's tried to shut out yes because he can't think about it yes right there's parts too and there it's a scene in the movie and the book that's kind of the same when they're all talking about like oh what will you do when the war is over or if the war is over right now what what would you do and you know the the group kind of talks about like oh would you be this profession, do that thing, this or that type of thing. And I just wanted to like read a part of the book here because I think, I mean, there's so many parts in this book where Paul as the narrator is kind of talking about like 
just what it's like to be in this war and like all the things that he's lost and just the state of these soldiers. But I think this is a really good part. That's just it. Kat and Dietering and Hai will go back to their jobs because they had them already. Himmelstoss too, but we never had any. How will we ever get used to one after this here? He makes a gesture towards the front. What we'll want is a private income, and then we'll be able to live by ourselves in a wood, I say, but at once feel ashamed of this absurd idea. But what will really happen when we go back, wonders Mueller, and even he is troubled. Crop gives a shrug. I don't know. Let's get back first, then we'll find out. We are all utterly at a loss. What could we do? I ask. I don't want to do anything, replies Crop wearily. You'll be dead one day, so what does it matter? I don't think we'll ever go back. When I think about it, Albert, I say after a while, rolling over on my back. When I hear the word peacetime, it goes to my head. And if it really came, I think I would do some imaginable thing, something you know that it's worth having lain here in the muck for. But I can't even imagine anything. All I do know is that this business about professions and studies and salaries and so on, it makes me sick. It is and always was disgusting. I don't see anything at all, Albert. All at once, everything seems to me confused and hopeless. Crop feels it too. It will go pretty hard with us all, but nobody at home seems to worry much about it. Two years of shells and bombs? A man won't peel that off as easy as a sock. We agree that it's the same for everybody. Not only for us here, but everywhere. For everyone who is of our age. And some more. And to others less. It is the common fate of our generation. Albert expresses it. The war has ruined us for everything. Such a really fantastic part it of is. the book. And there are so many other parts that are like that. Yeah. Where either Paul by himself is thinking about the war or he and his friends are talking about it. And they're just thinking about, we can't come back from this. Yeah. Like, we're fucked up. Mm-hmm. And this is really going to affect us for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I love that line, you can't peel that off like a sock. Yeah. Just even in the middle of it, you know, we, we know about shell shock and the PTSD that soldiers mm-hmm. experienced. And it kind of, maybe not being a new thing, but I think it was more noticeable after this war and how many people were involved. And I think the psychological impact of the confinement of the front Mm -hmm. and the constant barrage of shells. And the trench warfare. Yeah, I think brought PTSD to the forefront in a way that really couldn't be ignored. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I them in the moment even knowing like this is with us forever. Yeah. We can't just come back from this, right? Mm -hmm. And of course their age too factoring into this they're so young yeah they haven't had a chance or any time to find a career have a family like do Mm -hmm. any of this stuff they're still so they're kind of blank slates in so many ways yeah like they said at the beginning of the part that i read some some of these men have jobs to go back to yeah but they're like what would we be qualified to do Mm -hmm. we haven't begun training and now we're kind of fucked right yeah and they're just like they've lived for years now this life of just constant survival and vigilance Mm -hmm. yeah i i really love that part really grounding it in the characters but obviously it's speaking for kind of the whole generation of youth that went through this for sure and it's just an example of the the book's really great writing style like simple to the point but just very nuanced and and thoughtful yes let's get to a part in the film now 
that is uh, exclusive to the film Mm -hmm. and maybe its biggest departure from the source material. Yeah. And that is the uh, character of Matthias Erzberger. Yes. Who was a a real person. He spoke on behalf of the Reich government Mm -hmm. in negotiations for armistice in World War I. And in the film, he's played by Daniel Bruhl, Mm -hmm. who a lot of people recognize from a lot of big movies. Yeah. Yeah. And he is there to negotiate with uh, the French, I think, specifically for the surrender of the German army. And they're on this train. It's winter. It's very dramatic. They're meeting in these, like, kind of secret negotiations, right? And we're shown how bad things are. Yeah. That Germany is wanting to negotiate and the French are kind of like, we know we have your asses, right? Here are our terms and you agree to them or not. And what's really interesting about this is if you know your history, you know that Germany was really, really struggling after World War One yes. because of the terms of their surrender. And then the treaty that would come much later, the Treaty of Versailles, where it was kind of the solid agreement. Like this armistice was sort of the temporary solution. Yeah. And then there's the, the treaty later. But the terms of first the armistice and then this larger treaty ended up being really difficult economically for Germany. Mm-hmm. And many people say that this paved the way for the rise of Nazism later. Yeah. And I mean, that's another whole, like, philosophical, like, political thing to to consider is, like, yeah. how, how do you end a war mm-hmm. where the loser, like is kind of punished but like but also what do you want from the war do you yes. do you want to heal or do you just want to punish the country that lost mm-hmm. and where do you go from here and obviously like this just led to another world war right yeah and then another reason and i think something that's sort of hinted at at this in this movie as well is the inclusion of like this general character yes who we see him talking about the war talking about the troops there's this scene where he is having dinner with another um, officer and he's talking about his father being a general and the glory of war and things like that and you can just tell like it's status to him it's power Mm -hmm. right he doesn't care about all the individuals who are dying And a lot of people have also said that part of the reason why we had another war right after this one from Germany was that there were so many people like this general who were angry and felt cheated by the war. Yes. And they wanted another chance to kill more people. Like, they were not done, right? They They saw the cost, and to them it didn't matter. Yeah, and I mean, you had a whole generation growing up facing the repercussions of World War One without actually, like, experiencing it themselves. Yeah. And so you have all the anger and the passion from the fallout of it without actually, like, any of the lessons you might have learned from I know. what it actually means to go through a war like that. Mm-hmm. I love these parts, though, in the film because they really highlight this kind of awful pointlessness to the killing and the violence that's going on because a lot of the armistice negotiations are intercut with war battle scenes yes and while they're negotiating and talking about the the fine points and having to you know consult with uh other people on Mm -hmm. their sides and reaching an agreement you know Erzberger, who is kind of outspoken against the war yeah is saying like thousands of people are dying 
Like every, every hour, every hour that we sit here and mm-hmm. twiddle our thumbs and try to like figure this out. Yeah. And I think that is really um, depicted well in the film and is and with the the general character. Mm-hmm. He's in this kind of beautiful old home eating fine cuisine and wine and wine and like splashing wine to his dog. I know. And just like the disconnect between him and the soldiers below him is like so palpable. Yeah. And we see in these scenes like going back and forth between armistice negotiators and then the troops that Paul is a part of being ordered to uh, attack. Right. So there's another attack happening. And this is the part where they kind of get to the Russian, or not the Russian, they get to the French trench. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they they do a big push uh, across no man's land. They get to the French side. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just, it's carnage, right? It's just murder. It's, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like hand-to-hand combat, which is interesting Mm -hmm. to see because I think this was kind of like that turning point of the war. And there's, it's interesting how in World War One, like so much technology evolved yeah. and warfare evolved mm-hmm. from gas attacks and tanks and airplanes. And like you saw a lot of like the the beginning of the modern warfare. of modern warfare, but there was still that like hand to hand, grimy like combat, right? Yes, yeah. And so they they invade the other trench. They're killing all these French soldiers, and there's this part that is so perfectly absurd where Paul and his friends uh, find on the French side of the trench like a stock room of food Mm -hmm. and there's like a table of like half of a meal that was eaten and they just kind of stop and drop everything and just start stuffing their faces. Yeah and like they're looking around and making sure like nobody's coming in to attack (laughs) them but they're like food. (laughs) Yes because I mean at this point the German side in the book they just talk about how everything they eat is turnip based and I mean, a lot of times when they're being pinned down by an attack, they mm-hmm. can't go for food or water. They can't like, get supplies. Yeah, yeah, they're just stuck in these dugouts for like sometimes days. Mm-hmm. And so food is like so scarce, especially at this point in the war near the end. And so like in this moment, it's just like. Which more, what, what is more important? Yeah. You know? They're like food. Food. For yeah. me, it's food and I'm going to eat. <laughs> yeah. And so they're just stuffing their faces and I love it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they feel a trembling so, like a, a swarm of rats scurry past them and mm-hmm. they know something's coming. Yeah, they get out of the storeroom and then they're kind of looking outside the trench and they see tanks coming towards them, yes. right? And I think this is also great to illustrate is the beginning of the tanks. Yes. Because this was like, we didn't have tanks everywhere, but it was starting to become like a thing with mm-hmm. tanks. And that would be a huge thing in World War II, right? Yeah. So... The tanks are coming. There's an awful shot of the tank crushing somebody. Oh, my God. They're running. They're fleeing. I, I love that one shot where they stay in the f- the trenches on yeah. the French side until the tanks go over them. Yeah. And then they come out uh, to kind of try to counterattack the tanks. But, like, there's just one part, and I forget what character it is, whether mm-hmm. it's crop. The tank is just going over him, and he's just screaming because <laughs> it's, like, so horrifying. Yeah. And I think... The movie does a good job of depicting kind of the menace of the tanks and kind of how foreign they are. Like they're just approaching from yes. the foggy distance mm-hmm. and it's it's very ominous, right? Yeah. And then there's men that have flamethrowers that are just setting people on fire. It's a very horrific scene that had started out with them, you know, kind of winning, right? They're in the French yeah. trench and they're taking over and then these tanks come and then these extra reserves come and they've got, they've got these flamethrowers and we see 
uh, Paul gets separated from um, Franz Mueller, yeah. his friend with the scar. Yes. And then we see um, Krop being killed by a flamethrower. Yeah, he just kind of gets... I, I watched a review kind of talking about uh, the accuracy of the warfare in the film, and mm-hmm. he described it as, uh, what, what was it, like war hypnosis, mm. where Krop was just kind of in a spot and was just firing even though the enemy was coming up quickly yeah. and he should have fled but he just didn't mm-hmm. and he gets pinned down and they they use a flamethrower on him and it's like really horrifying and Paul sees the whole thing mm-hmm. you could almost argue this is kind of a metaphor for the evolution of the war yeah. to begin with where they push against the french and then mm-hmm. like this like tanks and flamethrowers come back at them yeah like this uh, two new technologies like push them back mm-hmm. and it's interesting too because the book describes, you know, in the film, we know this is the end of the war is approaching. Like, yeah. they're very close. And the book talks about this time, like, this is near the end of the book. Mm-hmm. But it talks about how at this stage in the war, the trenches were kind of like not even, they, they didn't even exist anymore. Like, yeah. they were just bombed to hell. They were hardly connected. And they were mainly, like, fighting out of shell holes. Mm -hmm. They kind of had, like, encampments of shell holes. Wow. And it was just so, like, everything was just decayed at this point. Yeah. And the book also talks about how they are just running out of supplies so much at the end. Yeah. And that's a problem throughout the book. So even from the middle of the war when we're kind of starting the book towards the end, supplies is always an issue. But, you know, in the book, Paul talks about how... You know, American and British troops are arriving every day to supplement the French and new supplies are coming in for them, whereas they have nothing. Well, and I think it speaks a lot to if you look at World War One from a global political perspective, like when you have such a big war, it kind of compounds and becomes bigger, right? Yeah. Well, Germany needs more supplies, even if it's food. So what countries are going to give them supplies? And then, like, I know the the British, like, blockaded, Mm -hmm. like, uh, ports. Yeah. So the Germans couldn't get more supplies. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, maybe they can get us stuff and maybe they can get us soldiers. And it just kind of keeps roping in more and more countries and just escalates in that way. Definitely. We get to a point now in the film where, as Paul is retreating – he stumbles into a shell hole. The French kind of go past him. He plays dead. But there's one French soldier in the film that sees him. Mm-hmm. And this is very similar to the book where he was in no man's land and got lost. Yeah. Like he didn't know what direction to go. Yeah. And he had to just wait it out. And a French attack happened where he just played dead and they mm-hmm. kind of went past him. But a French soldier in the book stumbles into his shell hole. So in both instances, he's confronted with a French soldier. The situations are a little bit different. Um, In the movie, like, they're kind of farther apart. And he sees that this soldier might shoot him. And then that soldier gets kind of blown, not hit by an explosion, but I think the momentum of the explosion pushes him more into the trench. Yeah. And then Paul kind of uses that opportunity to, to attack him. In the book... Paul is just laying there pretending to be dead. The soldier literally falls into the like shell hole next to him and he's like kind of on top of him. Yeah. And then Paul kind of instinctively like stabs him. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of he's more aggressive in a way in, in the, the movie. In the movie. But also he was going to shoot him in the yeah. movie. So Paul ends up attacking this man and stabbing him multiple times with his knife. Yeah. And this is such an interesting situation because Paul is still pinned down Mm -hmm. in this shell hole. 
And this man, and he stabbed him like four or five times, but he's still breathing. He's still alive. Yeah. And Paul is just confronted with having to look at him. He Mm -hmm. can't escape him. He can't get out of this hole. Yeah. I love in the film, I forget if this is in the book, he puts a helmet on a stick and raises it up and it gets shot off immediately. So he's Mm -hmm. like, I can't get out of here. Yeah. And there's this just amazing shot in the film of this man dying and just the camera is cutting back and forth between him and Paul. Paul is like scrambled to the other end of the hole as Mm -hmm. far away as he can get. But the camera just kind of keeps pushing in on each of them looking at each other. Mm -hmm. And you just see the horror in Paul's face. And he quickly like rushes back over Mm -hmm. and tries to help the guy. Yeah, this is a really, really awful part in both the book and the movie. I think Paul being trapped in this situation, having to see what he's done and see the realities of war up close, right? He's confronted with the fact that this is just a man, right? Yeah. Who's dying, who he killed, and he can't save him. He knows that. It's like too late. But also, he can't kill him either, right? No, he can't bring himself. He can't bring himself to do it, even though it would put this man out of his misery, right? It's just so tragic and so awful. And- You know, Paul ends up trying to apologize to this man, tries to save him. There is no saving him ultimately, and he does eventually die. And, like, Paul kind of looks through his wallet and sees, like, pictures of his family and letters he wrote, and it's just really sad. It's it's devastating. Yeah. And in the book, you get to go through all these things in Paul's head. Like, the man was a, a typesetter, I think. And Paul was like, now I have to become a typesetter. And yeah. he's having these almost like crazy he's, thoughts. Yeah, he's hallucinating almost. Yeah, and he thinks like, I'm going to, he's like, I have to send money or I have to write to his wife. Like, I need, I need to write this wrong. And it, it's just a so interesting to see when he's confronted with the reality mm-hmm. of the violence of war and he can't just like leave it. Yeah. Like he can't just shoot it at a distance and mm-hmm. forget about it. He can't just stab him and leave. Yeah. He's forced to like see a man dying at his own hand mm-hmm. and what that means for him like psychologically in this moment. Yeah. It's it and you know I referred to this kind of back with in the book with the uh, prisoners of war part. Mm-hmm. There's multiple parts in the book and film where he's confronted with facing the enemy and acknowledging that they're human too. Yeah. And even though you can tell it's affecting him, he can't not do anything. Yeah. He can't do anything. Yeah. He can't abstain from the war and the Mm -hmm. fighting. He can't, uh, you know, right the wrongs that he's, he's committed. He's just kind of like forced to suffer from them. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to bring it a little bit higher (laughs) and talk about one of my favorite parts in the book. Um, They're having a little bit of a break from the front and they're given an assignment to guard this abandoned French village because there's like a supply dump there. Yeah. So uh, it's Paul and all his buddies and they're at this. French village that is just getting shelled, right? Yeah, just continuously. But like everyone has left and they're like, this village is going to be destroyed. So they're literally just looting the village. (laughs) They're like, what cool stuff can we find? And I love this because they have this like kind of base that's below ground, I think. So it's safe, as, as, as safe as it can be from the shelling. 
And they, like, collect all the mattresses in the village. Yeah. And then they make one big, like, bed in the basement. Yeah. A mega bed, if you will. <laughs> like a circle of mattresses so that they can sit and yeah. just lounge around. Yeah, and blankets, and they, and they make it all nice. And then they're like, oh, my God, there's all this food. Let's make a feast. Yes. And they get so into they, it, Ian. They find, two wild, they find two pigs that I think maybe belong to a farmer, but two uh, sucking pigs. And mm-hmm. so they kill them, and they're cooking the pigs. Yeah. And so they start a fire in this house to cook everything Mm -hmm. but the smoke from the chimney gives them away yeah and now the enemy is like oh there are people there so they start shelling that area like more heavily yeah and they but they're like we're we're finishing this meal we're cooking everything yeah so they're literally like okay we'll finish cooking the meal they're ducking while they're like (laughs) cooking and stuff and then they finally get it so that they're done but they have to bring the food from where they were cooking it to, like, their base. Yeah. Right? So they're taking turns, like, running across (laughs) this area where they're getting shot. And I just want to, like, read this part to you. The next shot. Everyone ducks and then two more trot off, each with a big can of finest-grade coffee, and reach the dugout before the next explosion. Then Cat and Crop seize the masterpiece, the big dish with the brown roasted sucking pigs. A screech, a knee bend, and away they race over the 50 yards of open country. I stay to finish my last four pancakes. Twice I have to drop to the floor. After all, it means four pancakes more, and they are my favorite dish. Then I grab the plate with the great pile of cakes and squeeze myself behind the house door. A hiss, a crash, and I gallop off with the plate clamped against my chest with both hands. I'm almost in. There is a rising screech. I bound. I run like a deer. Sweep round the wall. Fragments clatter against the concrete. I tumble down the cellar steps. My elbows are skinned, but I have not lost a single pancake, nor even upset the plate. (laughs) (laughs) I just, like, love the image of him taking a running leap down the steps, like, cradling these pancakes. I mean, it would be, like, a heroic action scene in any war movie, except he's, like, just trying to save these potato pancakes. Yes. And I just love the, I mean, like, the movie kind of touched on this a little bit in that moment in the French trench where they're eating the food. But this is, like, that times ten where they're committed yes. to cooking this meal in the middle <laughs> of a bombardment. Uh-huh. And, like, splinters are flying. They keep having to, like, duck and drop to the floor. But they're just, like, committed to doing it. Yeah. I also love, they have, like, this crazy meal where they're stuffing themselves, having coffee and cigars <laughs> and, and brandy and cogn. Y- Cognac. Cognac. (laughs) And then they um, realize that the pigs are making them shit. (laughs) Yeah, the fat content. Yeah, and they're not used to it. And so literally they talk about how the shelling keeps continuing outside. Yeah. But they have to keep taking turns to go out and shit, like, constantly through the night. And I think they said at one point all 11 of them were outside (laughs) shitting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, just, like, focusing on the day-to-day minutia and, like... Uh, the the human nature, right, of war, despite yes. how, like, awful and horrific everything going on around them is, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I don't know, just these men committed to, like, cooking this feast. And enjoying the simple things, right? Yeah, and the dark humor that kind of comes from that. <laughs> yes. That, this was definitely one of my favorite parts, too. I loved this so much. <laughs> um, so back to the movie, after this crazy attack and Paul getting trapped in that shell hole and everything, they end up back kind of at their base. They're not at the front anymore. And rumors of the armistice are spreading. It's not official yet, but the soldiers are already celebrating, right? Yes. The Kaiser has um, abdicated. abdicated. 
And so there's just kind of like this crazy party basically going mm-hmm. on. Like all the soldiers are just kind of like celebrating. They're all kind of like dipping into the rations and kind of just like demanding more, right? Yeah. Paul is reunited with Kat at this time. Yes. And they realize that um, everyone else is basically dead except uh, Jaden. Yes, Jaden mm-hmm. uh, has a really bad leg wound. Yeah. And they find him kind of in a courtyard with a lot of other dying and wounded. Mm-hmm. And he's worried that they're going to have to take his leg. And I, I think Paul is pretty sure that he's probably not going to make it based yeah. on the wound and the amount of care that they were able to get. But he and Kat uh, get some get some food and come back with it for Jaden and give it to him. And... Jaden is laying there and you know that he's really down Mm -hmm. and he looks at his fork and then he uses the fork to stab himself in the neck. Yeah. And kills himself. And then he bleeds out. (laughs) And it's so. It's so awful for Paul and Kat, right? They're like, here's some food, buddy. And he's like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, Uh, it's really, really dark. It's actually based on something from the book where there's a part where in the hospital there's this one character who has been blinded and they talk about how in the hospital they have to keep silverware and like knives from him yes because he keeps trying to kill himself Mm -hmm. and then they talk about a part where he tries to stab himself in the chest with a fork yes not in the neck it's really really dark (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh there's a scene though after this where cat and paul are kind of sitting there talking Mm -hmm. and they're kind of just like I think just ex- starting to realize that the war is coming to an end mm-hmm. that they both survived. Yeah. And kind of wondering what's going to happen to them. Yeah. And I think Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, he lost either the wallet or the photo from the French soldier in the. I think so. Yeah. And something about this I kind of really love mm-hmm. that he like lost it, he misplaced it, and he doesn't have it anymore. And it's almost like. That soldier is kind of lost in a way to history. Like, he's Mm -hmm. just kind of another nameless, faceless person. Yeah. And Paul is just feeling so bad about everyone Mm -hmm. who they lost because Mueller is gone, too. Yeah. Uh, They got separated in that battle, Mm -hmm. and he found out that he died. And he has his scarf now, the one that the French girl had given him. Yeah. And... Kat is just trying to tell him, like, listen, we're the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. And I love this. You know, we talked earlier about how random the violence of the movie is. Yeah. How characters just kind of die. Like, Paul is just one of hundreds of men just charging forward. Yeah. And somehow he's spared. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you kind of wonder, like, maybe they are just lucky. Maybe they just have luck on their side. And that's the only thing that has gotten them through this, right? Yeah. There's a part um, in the book here. I, the book is really kind of, it, it, it takes a long time, right? And we see different parts of the war, whereas the movie is a lot more focused, right? It's kind of like starts out with just Paul and his friends signing up in their first battle. And then it's like, here's just the last month or so of the war, yes. right? Showing yeah. that part. And the book is just larger in scale and also i think it's trying to show different parts of the war yes we get the part where paul goes home on leave and so we see what it's like for soldiers coming back and how that feels and then we get this part where paul and crop are actually both injured and are sent to a hospital and they're in this uh catholic hospital with all these nuns yeah and so we're getting kind of like 
an experience of like what it was like to be in the hospital. And we know from reading about the author's life that he was in a hospital for a long time. I was going to say this part makes a lot of sense knowing the author's history in World War One. Mm-hmm. And Mueller, unfortunately, has to have his leg amputated. And this is clear that it's trying to make that connection with Jaden in the movie. Yes. And you can tell he's just like really low about it and really and, and you know, Paul is, I think, worried about him, maybe. Because I think he says at some point, like, if they cut my leg off, I'll kill myself, like, the first chance yeah, I get. Yeah, But I do think by the time they are separated, because Paul ends up getting better mm-hmm. and is sent back to the front after this. Yeah. And when he leaves Crop, yeah. I think Crop is in a better place now. I think he he's... He talks about not being worried about him killing himself yeah. anymore. That, like, he probably would have done it right after he got his leg amputated if he was alone. But because he was in this group of soldiers that were all recovering together and Paul was there with him, he's like, I think we got him over the worst of it. Yes. Right? And it was a period of adjustment. There's this really ridiculous but funny part in the book where there's one of the soldiers in their kind of like big hospital wing. Yeah. His wife is coming to visit him. He hasn't seen her in years. Mm-hmm. And he's so excited about it. And he's he is getting better. I forget what his injury was. Yeah. But he's able to kind of like walk around and his like biggest like what he wants more than anything is to like go into town with her yeah. and fuck her brains out. Yes. <laughs> like, and and so his buddies are like, we get it, man. Yeah. Like we would also want to do that. So they're like, oh I know this place in town you can go. You yeah. can get you can get leave from the the nuns to just go out for the day with your wife and the the wife is bringing um their young child that he hasn't seen yet. Like it's this whole thing. Yeah. Um but of course he's so excited about it. He's overexerting himself and then he gets like a little uh fever or a little cold Yes. And he he's basically bedridden. And it's so sad. And he's so <laughs> bummed about it. Yeah. And his wife comes to visit. And all the men in his wing have orchestrated everything. <laughs> yes. Where they have some people posted outside the doors. To stand guard. To, in case any nurses or nuns come around. Mm-hmm. And all the men are just like, we're all just going to turn our backs and play some card games. Very loudly. Very loudly. And you two can do. <laughs> one of them takes the baby. Yes. One of them's like, I yeah. got the baby. They put a bunch of, they use all their pillows so they can prop the, yeah. gu- the the sick man in bed up so he can lie on his side. And then they're all like, all right, we're all going to be over here looking this way. And we're going to play like uh, this card game really loud. And just allowing this couple to have yeah. sex with each other in the, in privacy, in relative privacy yes. and peace, you know, it's so sweet. It's it is really sweet. Like it's really <laughs> funny and kind of absurd, but also like really touching I know. in a way. Yeah. And the wife at first is like, I don't know about this, but they end up doing it, and I she know. seems like really like grateful to all the men and is yeah. like very thankful towards them. And I loved this part a lot. I did too. <laughs> So we're reaching the end of the war in the movie at this time. But in the book, kind of after this stint in the hospital, things are sort of speeding up in the book as well. Yeah. We get kind of this time jump where um, we hear about what's been going on and we kind of get a roll call of like who among Paul's friends is dead. Yeah, because I mean, up until this point, there's only been like a couple of deaths Mm -hmm. and uh, mostly characters that were more minor, right? Yeah. Uh, But... God, how, who I'm trying to remember now. We have uh, Dietering. Oh, yeah. Who so Dietering <laughs> didn't die, but there's this part where he talks about they were just marching, I think. And yeah. they came across a cherry blossom tree mm-hmm. that was in bloom. 
And Dietering went back later and grabbed one of the branches. Yeah. And, and the- like, Paul knows that this is bad. Well, yeah, well, they ask him. They kind of tease him yeah. about it. And then he talks about, like, oh, you know, there's a lot of these trees at my home. Yeah, on my farm. Yeah. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and sure enough, like, two days later, he leaves. Yeah. And Paul had, like, tried to stay awake to make sure he didn't run away. Yeah. They find out that he's caught because he tried to run home and court-martialed. So I think they assume that he was executed. Really? Would that have been the the punishment? Or I don't know. I mean, we saw in the movie the people that were later on at the end Mm. refusing to fight and them getting shot. That's right, isn't it? God, yeah. So he might be dead. We don't know. (laughs) Um, We have Mueller dying, getting shot in the stomach and then dying pretty quickly. And and they're unable to get him to help during, during a fight. And tragically, Mueller, who took uh, Kemmerich's boots, yeah, gives those boots now to Paul, and Paul has them. And Paul's like, I've pom- I've promised them to Jaden if I go. Yeah. Like, they're just passing these boots along. Yeah. It's really sad, but, like, also realistic. Like, it just kind of reaffirms that mentality of theirs of, like, let nothing go to waste, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. We also have Lear and and Berger, who are just minor characters who also die at this time. And it just is, you know, adding to that feeling of everything being a lot more desperate, things being worse than they were, and and reaching some kind of end. Well, and, and, you know, it feels like up until this point, their company or whatever their unit is Mm -hmm. called – has been really lucky. And, and yeah. uh, Paul has acknowledged this in the book. Like, you know, we have more guys alive from our original company than like a lot of others. Yeah. Like we're lucky. Mm-hmm. But it just feels like with this kind of warfare and how brutal it is, it's kind of just a matter of time. It is. Yeah. Right. Like it's really hard to survive that length of time on the mm-hmm. battlefield. And that like it's only a matter of time before they'll start dropping away. Yeah. And of course, Germany is just at this point in the book, really struggling, whether it's with, like, food or recruitment or just the, um, you know, the, the battle, mm-hmm. the battles themselves. Uh, they're, it's very apparent that they're not going to hold out. They're going to lose. Yeah. And then in the movie, we get to this point where we actually see the armistice being signed. Mm-hmm. So we have, um, what's his name? Erzberger? Matthias Erzberger. Erzberger. Um Signing this document, the French agree. For some reason, they're like, okay, this will go into effect in five hours. Yes. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Yes. And I was watching a video kind of talking about the historical, like, aspects of this movie. And they were like, they kind of said part of this was so that, like, the message could be broadcast and, like. They had time to tell people. They could make sure everyone knows Mm -hmm. by the time it happens. But they also were like. It was also clearly part, like, of just an intention to be poetic. Yeah. To be like, oh, on the 11th hour of the 11th month (laughs) of the 11th day. And that, like, really, it was just kind of pointless. Mm -hmm. Like, it was really just a dumb reason. Yeah. When they could have just done a more immediate, even if it might not have been, like, perfectly uniform, Mm -hmm. to do an immediate armistice would have been, like, more And tell people as soon as possible, right? Yeah. So... The document's been signed. People Mm -hmm. have been informed. But that's not going to stop everyone. Yeah. We see this general 
and he's upset by this. And he says, I want there's there's new recruits still coming yeah. to the mm-hmm. front. And he's like, I want all the new recruits and everyone here sent here. Yeah. And we're like, what's going to happen? And meanwhile, Cat and Paul in the movie are like, oh, my God, the armistice. There's no like we don't hear any shelling anymore. Oh, let's celebrate. What should we do to celebrate? Let's go steal a goose. Let's steal a goose again. Again. (laughs) So they go back to the same farm. Yeah. And this is exclusive to the film. Yeah. The first goose scene happened in the book as well, but this one is, you know, exclusive Mm -hmm. to the film. And so... He he's gonna send he's gonna help Cat over the fence. Yeah. But he said, No, I did it last time. If the farmer sees me again, he'll definitely kill me. <laughs> and I'm like, he was shooting at you the first time. Yeah. Like I don't think I don't think it matters. No. <laughs> I think he's gonna try to kill whoever goes over. Yeah. So this time it's Paul who goes over mm-hmm. and he's stealing eggs. And then you see him look with horror kind of off screen, and there's the the farmer's son seeing him. Yeah. And the son like closes and locks the door and runs for his dad. Mm-hmm. Paul takes off and the farmer's chasing him with his gun, shooting at him. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my like, God. they're going to die. They're going to yeah, die. They only have a few more hours before they can go I home. Know. Like, like, why do this? They're going to die in the dumbest way. They managed, Paul manages to escape the farm. He and Kat are like running away and yeah. they get they get away. And mm-hmm. I was stunned. I'm like, I can't believe that they got away with it. They get away. They eat the eggs that are dripping because the <laughs> eggs are shot somehow. Yeah. Um, and then Kat's like, uh, BRB, I'm just going to pee in the woods. Mm-hmm. And then the farmer's son is there and he just shoots him. I mean, I was like mixed on this part. Yeah. When we first watched it. Because I'm like, I mean, I don't totally believe they would have gone back for the goose when... I know. The war was so close to ending. Yeah. I'm like, is it that they're just so... They think they're so lucky at this point? Yeah, or maybe they feel invulnerable. Yeah. I don't know. I I can't totally... I mean, in one way, I like how pointless Kat's death feels Mm -hmm. and how avoidable it was. Yeah. Because, I mean, you could, you know, expand that to the war itself like how every death was pointless Mm -hmm. how every death was stupid essentially yeah um so thematically i i i kind of get it but i'm also not totally sold on it i agree and then if you contrast this with the book i think the book does it better yeah because it's a similar well it's similar in that cat is injured so you know paul and cat are fighting in a battle and Cat ends up just injured in the shin, right? Yeah. It's some kind of wound. They don't know if what what the extent of it is, but it's not too bad, right? But Paul is determined to make sure Cat survives, right? Yeah. And they're, we've seen how close they are. So Paul is literally supporting him at first. They stop multiple times and then either talking and they're like, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to get you to, you know, um, a doctor and you'll be OK. It's just your shin. And at one point he even like is carrying him on his back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like a fireman's carry. And Paul like finally reaches a medical station and is like, oh, thank God I did it. And he's thinking the whole time on the way there. He's like and he's telling this to Kat at certain points, too. He's like, this is great. Like you're injured You'll be in the hospital. You'll be out of the action. They'll send you home. Like, you're fine. This is perfect. And, like, this is so good. It's almost the end of the war. We can all tell. You'll be able to go home. And inwardly, he's like, I'm so sad, though, because we're going to be separated. Yeah. It's really devastating. And so 
And, and this whole, like, him carrying him to the hospital is the same in the film. Yeah. Except in the film, Kat's been shot, like, in the abdomen. Yeah. So it's much more, yes. like, intense of a situation, like, much more time crucial. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the book, it's just, like, he has a shin wound. Yeah. And in the book, he gets Kat to uh, the surgeon, drops him on the bed. He's thirsty. He's drinking water. Mm-hmm. And the surgeon's like, should have spared yourself the time. He's dead. Yeah. And and Paul is just like, what do you – no, he's unconscious. Like, yeah. he passed out from the pain. Like, he only has a shin wound. Yeah. And the doctor looks at his head, and he's like, no, he's got a splinter in his head. Yeah. And Paul realizes – because he was, like, carrying him through – Through a lot. Through a lot, like, mm-hmm. battles and shelling and – And they were stopping at multiple points, and at some point during when he was carrying him, just a, a stray piece of shrapnel – Yeah. Uh, embedded itself in the back of his head and he probably died instantly. And Paul didn't even know. No. It's so, so sad. And I mean, once again, just the luck of it. Like, it easily would have killed Paul except that he had Cat Cat on his back back and Mm -hmm. Cat took the the hit for him. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's such a sad, sad moment. And I mean, it's similar. It's similar in the film Except I think it's less like shocking. Yeah. That when he, by the time he gets cat, their cat's dead. Yeah, like, you're like he was shot in the stomach. Like. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I that I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, it's real depressing. And then the movie makes it even more depressing. Oh, the movie. <laughs> you know, I really, I really love the ending of this film. Yeah. So. Paul is just, I mean, devastated. Just like he's lost everyone now. Yeah. He. Goes outside, new recruits are coming, and the general has is gathering everyone in front of his his palace, I'll say. It's not a palace, <laughs> but you know. And he's like, the, the armistice is about to take effect. Which I do want to say, though, in the film, I didn't realize that it hadn't taken effect yet. Yeah. I think it feels like a lot of time passes. I know. Like... It's, it was early in the morning, I guess, when they went to get the goose. They stole the goose. Cat got shot. Yeah. Paul carried him all the way to the surgeon. I know. And like, you're like, it must be 11 a.m. Yeah. Like, it must. <laughs> it's probably like the afternoon by this point, right? But not quite. Uh, it's not 11 a.m. yet. The armistice is, is about to take place. But the general is like, we're going to show them what we're made of in the last don't you want to go Min- home as heroes? Yeah, in the last minutes of this war, we're going to show them what Germany's made of. Mm-hmm. We're going to march on the French trench mm-hmm. once again and fight them. Yeah. And this is where I mentioned that some of the men are like, I'm not fucking doing that. And they take them and they shoot them. Yeah. And they're like, we're doing this. So Paul, I mean, and you can see it on Paul's face. And I think most of the posters that have Paul's face in it is this part where he's marching for like the last time. And he's literally, he's lost everyone. He has nothing now. Cat's dead. And he's literally being forced. He thought the war was over and he's being forced to march one more time. And I mean, Felix Kammerer or mm-hmm. Kammerer, uh, who is the lead in this film. This is his feature debut wow. as an actor. He's he, he did stage plays and stuff before this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is just so phenomenal in this role. Yeah. And like this part especially, like his kind of vacant, glazed over expression. Yeah. As he's marching and even running mm-hmm. into this battle at the end. It just like He's not a person anymore. No. Yeah. He's lost everything. Yeah. And I, I wanted to look this up and find out like the historical accuracy of these last minute fights and if this really happened. And it did. And yeah. it happened 
all over. It yes. wasn't just one general, one German general that was doing this. In fact, one of the American commanding officers, Pesching. Yes, he, I heard this too. He like ordered all these attacks for the Americans and so many people died. And he actually like faced a review yeah. after the war because some of the American soldiers were like, why did you do this? Well, And I read that a lot of countries a lot of those people that died that day Mm -hmm. the military lied and said they died on the 10th of november oh my god because they were embarrassed yeah they're like the armistice was passed at this point no one should have died and Mm -hmm. they did so they lied and they're like oh he was shot down in the the 10th of november Mm -hmm. uh so i mean clearly just like I, i think the film at the end said like 3,000 people? I think I read that there were 10,000. Okay, I was going to say 3,000 doesn't seem like enough. That died that day. Yeah, that died the day the armistice was signed. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, just, you know, once again, highlighting how absolutely pointless all of this is, right? Yeah. It's a really crazy fight. And I think us talking about how dead Paul is inside, we see him attacking very fiercely. Yes. Like, he's, like, hacking people to death with his helmet. Like, it's really Mm -hmm. intense. And it just feels like he's lost, you know, everything in himself. Yeah. He kind of gets in a skirmish with one soldier in particular. The soldier is, like, drowning him in mud. Yeah. He manages to, like, hit him with a rock. They both tumble into a dugout Mm -hmm. together. And once again, we get one of these moments where they both just kind of stop. Yeah. And are just facing each other, kind of confronted with each other. Yeah. And neither of them is moving to attack each other. And that's when a a soldier from the shadows appears and stabs Paul in the back with a bayonet. Yeah. And... I think this moment is like, I mean, it was it was surprising just because of the way they like filmed it yeah. and did it. But I'm also like not surprised at all. And it no. feels like it feels like the way this movie needed to end. I know. I felt like as soon as we found out that they were sending them back to the front for one last time, you're like, oh, Paul's dead. Yeah. Like Kat's dead. Paul has nothing to live for. Like he's going down. There's no way he can get out of this. And yeah. he shouldn't. Like I know he's been lucky throughout this whole time to like survive but like there's only so much the movie is very um i think truthful in showing the chaos of the killing right yeah and how it's just a, a roll of the dice right yeah and there's only so many times you can put your main character through that and mm-hmm. then they get out that i know it beca- that it's believable yeah that you believe it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so He's stabbed like what looks like right through the heart in front of this other soldier. And there's kind of this moment of them looking at each other. Yeah. And the soldier leaves and Paul is stunned. And the way this part is shot is so beautiful. And then they start yelling, it's 11 a.m. Yeah. Stop fighting. Mm -hmm. The armistice takes effect. Like the moment after he's killed. Yeah. Uh, And Paul, mortally wounded, stumbles towards the staircase coming out of the dugout and it's just like a shaft of light coming down it's Mm -hmm. so perfectly symbolic like on one hand it's heavy-handed but in a way that feels earned yeah you know what i mean like the the situation itself it feels very realistic if that makes sense and yeah he manages to like walk all the way out and at one point i'm like is he actually did he actually even walk outside or did he just drop dead is this all metaphorical Mm -hmm. he ended up actually like getting as far as coming outside in the trench Mm -hmm. and just he drops dead we don't see it Mm -hmm. uh the camera focuses on a different part for a moment and we see a young soldier yeah it was somebody that 
Paul actually was like had saved earlier. Yes, yeah. He had helped him, and we don't know who this person is, but we see that he has survived this melee, and then he's sitting down, you know, trying to recover, and this, you know, commanding officer is like, hey, get up and do something useful. Collect these dog tags. Just like we saw... Paul doing. Paul doing. At the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And so this kid's going around and snapping off these dog tags, and of course he comes to Paul's body. Yeah. And clearly recognizes Yeah. Him. And takes his dog tag and moves on. And the camera just holds there. Well, he takes his scarf. And the scarf, the scarf yeah. too. Yeah. He takes the scarf. And then the camera just holds there on Paul for like quite a long moment. Mm-hmm. And it just feels so, I don't know, very contemplative. Yeah. And this is how the movie ends. And the book ends differently, um, but Paul does meet the same fate. Mm-hmm. You know, after Cat dies in the book, it's clear that Paul is just really hopeless yeah. at this time. And we get kind of just some facts about him. He ends up on leave again because of another injury and is just kind of like considering like what has happened in his life. And then we get this sort of like epilogue about Paul's own death. It's it's so brief and at the very end like mm-hmm. it's not even titled like epilogue or anything no. at least in my book the formatting of it like yeah. the passage is at like the bottom of the page mm-hmm. it looks like it'd be about the author or something yeah but all it says is he fell in october 1918 on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front that the army report confined itself on the single sentence all quiet on the western front he had fallen forward and lay on the earth as though sleeping Turning him over, one saw that he could not have suffered long. His face had an expression of calm, as though almost glad the end had come. Just kind of this abrupt, very unceremonious end. You don't even know how he died. Yeah. And I mean, which is appropriate because the whole book is like from a first person perspective. So Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't probably know like if it happened quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And and so tragic, like in October, like a month before the end of the war, the end of the war, Mm -hmm. he died. And I don't know. Once again, it feels like just appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. Like, especially a book told from the first person perspective, you're kind of just like, it's not really told in a way of like him reflecting back on anything. So there's not a guarantee that he survives, but I think that's kind of your impression reading it. Yeah. Yeah, That like, he'll get out of this, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't. Yeah. And just kind of fitting to have this little like final paragraph. Yeah. Just like a footnote Mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. It's a it's a devastating ending in in both versions, but yes. I think I think the ending that the book deserves and needs, right? Yeah, yeah. After everything he's been through, and it's almost like he's happy dying. Yeah, I because mean, because at the end, like right before this, he's really thinking about what his life is going to be like when he comes back, mm-hmm. and if he can, what he'll be. And he talks about like the lost generation, right? These men who went to war and came back as shadows of themselves, right? With all this trauma and pain and often a lot of injury as well. I mean, we just talked about um, Lady Chatterley's lover, (laughs) right? Yeah. With this man who comes back from the war with this injury that affects his life forever, you know? Yeah, kind of, we didn't plan to do a a (laughs) back-to-back World War (laughs) I trauma double feature, but ended up doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the book is just so realistic about the costs of war and Paul being killed at the end just feels like, you know, appropriate. Yeah. Any final thoughts other than. uh, Oh, man. Which one is which one is better? 
I do know which one is better for me anyway. Yeah, I think I do too. Yeah. You know, I really liked this movie. Mm-hmm. I think so far, we haven't watched all the Best Picture nominees for the, the Oscars. This would probably be my second favorite though. It's high up there. It's just really well made. I think it executes its points perfectly. It's It feels very anti-war. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know, despite it being so dark and sad, it's not in a way that, I, I, I don't know, sometimes you watch a sad movie and you're like, this just feels like torture. Yeah. It doesn't, I'm not even getting anything out What's of it. What's the point of it's it? It's just merciless and being sad. Yeah. And I don't feel that way with this movie. Like, no. e- even for how dark it is, like, I don't know if it's that the, you care about the characters enough mm-hmm. or the the messaging of the movie is clear enough, but it feels like it's worth it, right? Yeah. And we have amazing cinematography in this film. Oh, gorgeous. Just gorgeous shots. The score is very interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. The, the kind of, I don't know if it's like a synth or kind of yeah. some distorted like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like yeah. very like kind of anachronistic, I guess. Yeah. Uh, feels like kind of modern German, like, dark yeah. club music. I don't know. <laughs> it feels like something that would be in, like, a Christopher Nolan movie or something. Yeah. Uh, and the performances and the, the action's great. But all that being said, I think I have to go with the book. I mean, this is a really, really good book. It's phenomenal. And, you know, I talked about reading it in high school. And I know I did enjoy parts of it and learning about it when I was in high school. But I sometimes think these books are wasted on high schoolers, right? Kind of. Because like you don't care. (laughs) And like you're in school. But coming back to this book as an adult and someone who's doing like this podcast on it, I just had so much more appreciation for the message and what the author was trying to convey. Yeah. And I just love this book's simplicity Oh, God, yeah, the writing style, the way it tells the story, just so matter of fact. And both, mm-hmm. like, the violence and the beauty yes. depicted in it, it's just very direct about it. It also feels very balanced, right? It has these moments where it's almost lighthearted, yes, right? yeah. And it's beautiful, and it's about the, these friendships between these men and their misadventures, right? <laughs> like, the French women, the village, and cooking the, yeah. the meal, and, and, and the sex in the, ho- in the hospital room, you know? I mean, it kind of... Like, I think that aspect of a story, like a war story, is needed so that you know what's at stake and what it can be lost, right? If they're just, like, soldiers and manly men doing this stuff. Aggressive machines. Like, you don't – it feels like they only exist for war. Yeah. But seeing this – these aspects of them, like – it's so sad how even, like, in these conditions, they can find humor and affection yeah. and, like, hope mm-hmm. in some instances. Which makes it all the worse when they're they're not able to survive it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It makes it so much more tragic for those reasons, for that levy, mm-hmm. levity that you get occasionally in the story. I also really loved the part when he goes on leave. Yeah. And how yep. impactful that was for his character. I think the book does a good job of getting, giving a broad scope mm-hmm. of the war, both, like... Uh, how he was recruited, what it's like on the front when mm-hmm. he's on leave, even when he's in the hospital. Like, you get different yeah. looks at kind of the different pieces of it. Mm-hmm. But all of that feels like it makes – it doesn't feel like it's going out of its way to put him somewhere that he, no. like, doesn't belong. It feels natural. Even when he's by the prisoner of war camp, like we were saying, why was he being trained again? Yeah. It's not very clear, but, like – that part's very short, and mm-hmm. the stuff with the prisoners of war was, like, interesting that, like, I still enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean – 
every year when we do this podcast, there's like one, maybe two books that really stand out to me mm-hmm. as being like really exceptional. Yeah. And I think this is at least one of those books from this year for me. For sure. And if you read this in high school and maybe had uh, mixed opinions on it, I would encourage you to read it again. Even though it is kind of dark and heavy, it's really easy to read. It's really readable. Yeah. And if you've never read it before, this might be a great opportunity to do so. And you can watch the film. And, you know, it's just we I have to choose the book. Yeah, and, I know, and the yeah. movie is good. The Definitely see the movie. But it's a book for me. You want to know what else is great about it? It's short. Yes. It's so short. <laughs> and I love that. I love a short book. So many books are just too long. Yeah, they're like 100 pages too they're long. They're 100 pages too long. <laughs> they don't need to be. And this one is just, I, I love how short it is. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> All uh, right. It's so, a book. It's, it's a book from both of us. Let's do uh, Lightning Round. Yes. So first up for lightning round, uh, let's let's talk about Himmelstoss, yes. the drill instructor that every that they all hated yes. and that they beat the shit out of in an alleyway, right? <laughs> so at some point he gets sent up to the front as well. Yeah. And it's this, this really interesting dynamic where like he's technically their superior, mm-hmm. but they also kind of like don't have to like respect him. Yeah. Because who's he who's he gonna tell? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, cause they don't care. Yeah. And so there's kind of this whole back and forth between them and mm-hmm. uh Jodan especially just, like, cannot stand him. Yeah. And in fact, like, during one of the battle scenes, Paul finds Himmelstoss, like, kind of cowering mm-hmm. in a in a bunk, in a bunker, and, like, has to, like, pull him out and, like, push him onto the battlefield. Yeah. But he does kind of get, like, a slight redemption. I think he grows to respect Paul and his comrades. And yeah. he ends up getting a job in the... Uh, the kitchen. In the kitchens. And ends up, like, giving uh, Paul and his friends, like, shifts yeah. to, like, peel potatoes and kind of, like, the really, like, low effort work. Mm-hmm. And even, Gives them extra food. Gives them extra food. And even Jaden, I think, kind of comes around to, like, respecting Himmelstoss a bit. Yeah, I think Himmelstoss, like, gets a dose of reality at the front. Yeah. And then it kind of makes him a better person. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Which is, is as good of an arc for him as you could have. Uh, so I want to mention this part where Crop uh, and Paul are in the hospital with these nuns, right? And they they just cannot sleep. Like, it's so miserable. They're all suffering. And then it's the early hours of the morning. Towards morning, morning, we doze a little. I wake up just as it grows light. The doors stand open and I hear voices from the corridor. The others wake up too. One fellow who has been there a couple of days already explains it to us. Up here in the corridor every morning, the sisters say prayers. They call it morning devotion. And so that you can get your share, they leave the door open. No doubt it is well meant, but it gives us aches in our heads and bones. Such an absurdity, I say, just when a man dropped off to sleep. All the light cases are up here, that's why they do it here, he replies. Albert groans. I get furious and call out, Be quiet out there! (laughs) A minute later, a sister appears. In her black and white dress, she looks like a beautiful tea cozy. Shut the door, will you, sister, says someone. We are saying prayers. That is why the door is open, she responds. But we want to go on sleeping. Prayer is better than sleeping. (laughs) She stands there and smiles innocently. And it is seven o'clock already. Albert groans again. Shut the door, I snort. She is quite disconcerted. Apparently she cannot understand. But we are saying prayers for you, too. Shut the door anyway. (laughs) She disappears, leaving the door open. The intoning of the litany proceeds. I feel savage and say, I'm going to count up to three. If she doesn't stop before then, I'll let something fly. Me too, says another. I count up to five. Then I take hold of a bottle, aim, and heave it through the door into the corridor. It smashes into a thousand pieces. 
The praying stops. A swarm of sisters appear and reproach us in concert. Shut the door, we yell. They withdraw. The little one who came first is the last to go. Heathen, she chirps, but shuts the door all the same. We have won. <laughs> I love this so much. I, it's so funny. And then when someone comes up to like reprimand them, one of the guys takes the blame. Yeah. And they're like, why would you take the blame for throwing that? And I don't quite understand like his diagnosis or what kind yeah. of label he has. But he's like, oh, I'm a such and such. I can literally do anything I want. Yeah. And they're like, oh, he's crazy. It's, it's like a psychosis. Yeah, thing. it's like a psychosis. <laughs> and like, so he can do it. He's like, I'll take the blame for everything. Yeah. It's <laughs> great. It's so funny. One of those lighthearted moments that's so good. Yeah. There's another part that I thought was kind of funny where they're all sitting around and kind of like thinking about like how futile the war is or the ways it could be done better. And uh, there's this part. Crop, on the other hand, is a thinker. He proposes that a declaration of war should be a kind of popular festival with entrance tickets and bands, <laughs> like a bullfight. Then in the arena, the ministers and generals of the two countries, dressed in bathing drawers and armed with clubs, can have at it amongst themselves. <laughs> Whoever survives, his country wins. That would be much simpler and more just than this arrangement, where the wrong people do the fighting. <laughs> so true, though. Right? Like, it would be, it would make just as much sense, honestly. Yeah. Last for lightning round, I want to share a little story that um, my sister actually shared with me because she was able to attend a writing panel when um, she heard some of the screenwriters from a lot of the recent Oscar-nominated films talk. And she heard uh, Leslie Patterson, Paterson, um, who is one of the screenwriters of this film, speak. And she and um, I think her writing partner, Ian Stokel, had the rights to this film for like 15 years or something crazy. And they were trying to make it the whole time and never could. Wow. And finally, they got teamed up with the director, the German director. And that's where it went into in the German direction. Yeah. Um, But... Literally, they were trying desperately to keep the rights to this movie this yeah. whole time. And they were all running out of money because they had to keep renewing the rights. Oh, my God. And it wasn't getting made. It wasn't getting made. And this woman is a triathlete. And so she was literally competing in triathlons and then using the winnings to use oh to buy the copyrights again. That's insane. And and literally, like, it got to the point once where she broke her shoulder before she was supposed to compete. <laughs> and was like, I don't know if I can compete, but they didn't have enough money to keep the rights. And so she, like, did it anyway, and she won <laughs> with a broken shoulder. That's fucking crazy. What a badass. Oh, my God. Apparently, she did, like, a one-armed swim stroke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, how could you? They need to make a movie about that. I know. That's unbelievable. Isn't that amazing? That's so crazy. <laughs> I love that. You know, so. I, I kind of wonder if like the success of 1917 yeah. helped get this movie greenlit. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe given the long production schedules of these movies, it might have been well before that film True. came out. But True. like, I know more World War One movies and projects are kind of coming out around now. Well, we had recently hit like the anniversary Oh, yeah. The 100-year anniversary. Well, and then there's that Peter Jackson project where they restored the old film from World War I. Mm -hmm. And uh, just kind of like a lot of projects are coming out about it now. Yeah. Which is interesting that we're kind of revisiting that war. For sure. Well, that's Lightning Round. And that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening to this one. It was really, really interesting. And I really like talking about this. I'm so glad we did this. Mm -hmm. I am really shocked by 
how much I enjoyed the book. So I was like, uh, a war book. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. I'm so happy we did it. Mm-hmm. If you want to let us know what you thought of the book, what you think of the movie, uh, you can email us at coveredacreditspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those sources and links are at our website, coveredcredits.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron. All our patrons have access to monthly bonus episodes, and we will be putting out a bonus episode on the Oscar films of this year for our patrons. And there's like a lot of other great benefits to becoming a patron, and you support your favorite podcasters. Yes. Of course, if you're still listening at this point, we have to be your favorite podcast, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, but yeah, and if you can't uh, become a patron, giving us a positive rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is also really helpful to us in terms of algorithms or however any of that works. Yes, the internet. It's all a mystery. <laughs> uh, thanks again for listening to this episode, though. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.